Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the Scanner studio is Will South, who is curator at the Columbia Museum of Art. And joining us from the University of Notre Dame is Dr. Erica Doss, who is professor of American studies. And we're going to be talking about Georgia O'Keeffe. And so, Dr. Doss and Will, welcome to the journal. Thank you. And Thanks for having me. Will, the Columbia Museum of Art has an exhibition, an ongoing mm -hmm. exhibition, about O'Keeffe. And let's talk about that. Well, 100 years ago, Georgia O'Keeffe spent significant time in Columbia. And so 100-year uh, anniversaries present a significant opportunity to exploit something like that and tell this story as it so happens that so many people do not know that she was, in fact, here, not just passing through and waving from a train, but that she was teaching art at Columbia College. And beyond that, this is where she had a big artistic epiphany and created the modernist works that would set her on her way. That's interesting because in our discussions for the Encyclopedia of South Carolina mm -hmm. and who to include, and Martha Severins did our art, O'Keefe was mentioned and the point was, well, she didn't really do anything here in <laughs> right. South Carolina. Right. Uh, and the irony is I used a quotation from her on how we selected mm -hmm. people, and it was, where I was born and where and how I have lived is unimportant. It is what I have done with where I have been that should be of interest. And using that quote, everybody said, well, she didn't do anything of interest in mm -hmm. Columbia, and now we found out that's not true. Right. For those of us who got our PhDs in New York, uh, one of the things that, that used to routinely surprise us was how really New Yorkers didn't see very far beyond the Hudson. And, <laughs> and I'm, I'm casting a broad net here. But O'Keeffe's time in Columbia was not uh, something that was of great interest uh, in terms of her biography. I mean, it, it had been routinely skipped over. I will say that O'Keeffe scholars now are, are picking up with that or catching up with that. But we thought it was a great opportunity to get into the nitty-gritty of what she did here and, and create a catalog as well as a show that detailed her time here, where she stayed, who she knew, uh, her relationship with the environment. And uh, it has turned out that her time here, of course, was critical in terms of, of what she made, but also of how she felt about the art world and uh, her connection to it. You know, it was kind of for O'Keeffe, the best of times, the worst of times. It was kind of Dickensian. She, she, on one hand, she thought, oh, I'm isolated here. I'm stranded. What am I going to do? You know, I'm going to stagnate here. And yet it gave her the time and the freedom to really evaluate her own work and realize, wow, you know, my work looks like everybody else's. I'm going to start all over. And that's the decision she made here in Columbia. And then, of course, when she went to New York, it was through... Mm -hmm the help of Anita Pollitzer, a Charlestonian, mm -hmm. uh, that she was kind of introduced into the art circles. Well, Anita was definitely a big, big factor. And I would, I would suspect that back when Georgia was first making the decision to come to Columbia, uh, she already knew Anita Pollitzer by that time. They had met at Columbia. This is a little confusing for our listeners. They had met at Columbia Teachers College in New York, not, not Columbia, South Carolina. And they became fast friends. And the question I get often right now regarding the show is, why would George O'Keefe come to Columbia anyway in the first place? I mean, she was in New York. And the short answer is uh, money. There was a job. O'Keefe was not uh, wealthy and uh, self-supporting in the way that Anita was, and uh, who came from a wealthier background and, and could avail herself of all the significant opportunities New York had to offer. Georgia had to make her way in the world. And when this job came up, 
there were there are opportunities that were twofold. It would be money, but it would also give her some time to focus on her own work, and that was very attractive to her at 27 years old. Professor Doss, have you and other scholars of modern art, are you aware of this period in Columbia, South Carolina? I think, as Will has pointed out, in the early part of the 20th century, um, American artists, and American artists in particular, wanted to be modern artists from all over the country, um, situated in places other than Manhattan, and George O'Keefe just happened to be one of them. Importantly, she is a what we might call a new woman. She is fiercely independent, and she's also completely dependent on herself for income and for livelihood. So she comes to uh, South Carolina, as Will's pointed out, because there is the offer of a, of a teaching position. And it's during this teaching that she discovers um, new directions in, in making modern art, and this becomes the course of her career over the next 40, 50 years. Well, can we describe for our listeners mm -hmm. the art that she was producing here? We say modern art, and mm -hmm. I know people think of O'Keeffe, they think of her later phases from, from the Southwest with her large morning glories and the right. uh, And animals. her time here precedes that greatly. But let's back up just a little bit and, and point out that when George O'Keefe came here, it's not as if she wasn't already a highly educated artist. Uh, mm -hmm. She had already studied in Chicago. She had already studied in New York. And she had studied with some terrific people. She had studied with William Merritt Chase, one of the great portrait painters uh, in American art history. And she knew the, the work of Arthur Wesley Dow and had studied with him. And Dow was very much a teacher who said, you have to look at the balance of opposites, you know, east and west, black and white, and uh, near and far, and think in terms of putting something beautiful in an empty space. And his project was not to, to mimic nature, but to interpret nature. She had that idea with her already. And from Chase, she had a great idea of how to manipulate materials, you know, how to paint, how to draw. And when she got to Columbia, again, she, she put all of her work on the wall of her Spartan little room in the old main building of Columbia College, and looked at it all alone and realized, wow, you know, my paintings look just like William Merritt Chase, and my little sketches look like Arthur Wesley Dow, etc. And she put it all aside and decided to start over. But when she started over, you know, impossible to jettison these ideas you already have in your head. And she'd go on these nature walks in Columbia and the environs, down to the Congaree, through Piney Woods, and she'd come back to her room and she would try and draw her experience. Now, this is something our listeners can, can maybe help get them a little entree into what modern art is. Instead of copying a tree, draw the experience of a tree. Or instead of copying the congaree, you know, draw your, how it felt to have your toes dangling in that water. That's a different thing. And so she was looking for visual equivalence of those experiences. And so she was being somewhat symbolic, very much creative, but using Dow's directive of finding balance, reducing things to basic shapes, being direct. And what she found was she was, she was creating something that even surprised her. You know, she'd look at it and she'd write to Anita Pulitzer, I don't even, you know, what is art anyway? I don't even know what I'm doing. And uh, it was that radical and it was that surprising even to herself. Professor Dawes, what about the other women artists in the country at, at this time, you know? I think America sat, although maybe she was a little bit earlier, but is O'Keefe really a woman pioneer in this area? 
I'd say she is a pioneer in general. It's sort of difficult for us to make a distinction between George O'Keefe, the artist, and George O'Keefe, the, the woman painter, although critics and reviewers of her work at the time certainly did so. Um, I think that, as Wills pointed out, George O'Keefe's primary interest was in George O'Keefe, and in particular her feelings about being in a natural environment or sometimes in an urban space. In the 1920s, she would paint quite a few um, sort of urban landscapes full of skyscrapers, for example. Um, but as a modernist, her primary interest um, came from how can I paint what I feel, not just what I see, uh, not what it, what is reflected in the world around me, but, but how do I feel about these experiences? How can I capture this? How can I put this on paper or perhaps on canvas? One of the inspirations in this regard uh, came from Kandinsky, the, the Russian-German artist who in 1912 published a book called Concerning the Spiritual in Art in which he is loosely talking and sort of instructing modern artists to break away from the idea that what you paint is the objective world, what you see. Instead, Kandinsky was really encouraging modern artists to go off in new and very different directions. And again, those directions would be sort of reflecting or embodying literally their, their personal sort of sensual experiences of the world around them. When we talk about urban, we need to remind our listeners that Columbia at this time was a very bucolic place. It particularly, Columbia College was on the edge of town. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it, it was a, basically a rural environment. It really was. In 1915, the state newspaper published a little uh, front page article on what Columbia has to offer to the world. And it proudly said, we have three skyscrapers, eight, 10, and 12 mm -hmm. stories respectively, and we have 15 miles of paved sidewalk. <laughs> and so it, <laughs> and uh, this was to attract people to what they considered at the time with a population of 50,000 people to be you know, a very, a very uh, developing city. But of course, when with O'Keefe coming from New York, she had a different view of that. Let's talk about what's in the exhibit. How large is it? Mm -hmm. uh, what from her Columbia period? Anything from the later period? Are you contrasting? I know you've got a, have, got a catalog. Yes, absolutely. One of the big picture things to understand when organizing a show on O'Keefe is that it isn't easy. And the reason it isn't easy is because everybody wants to do a show on O'Keefe, and when I say everybody, internationally. So when we undertook this project, uh, we soon discovered that uh, a museum in Paris was organizing an O'Keefe show, and a museum in Australia was organizing an O'Keefe show. And of course, that tends to, to create competition for loans. And then you've got a lot of museums with O'Keefe's on the wall that don't want to loan them simply because they want them up so their own visitors can see them. So we had to jump in very early, three, four years out, and, and be very calculated in terms of what it was we wanted to get. We wanted to get drawings that uh, Georgia had actually done here. Now, works on paper are fragile. They fade in light. Uh, charcoal tends to, to fall off the page when it's vibrated. Uh, these are very delicate works. But we went to the National Gallery of Art, and what we did was we pled our case that we were going to bring new scholarship to the field, to Georgia O'Keeffe studies. And that's very important in deciding whether or not you're going to loan to Georgia O'Keeffe. And the National Gallery agreed. Uh, their, their feeling now is that they don't want to loan these drawings any longer. They'd like to keep them in-house, but they're loaning us a few. And once they got on board, the O'Keeffe Museum in uh, Santa Fe 
got on board and became a terrific partner and said, we believe in this project too. We'll loan you another uh, drawing that she did in Columbia. And then our sister institution right here in South Carolina, the Greenville Museum of Art, for those who don't know, have an early O'Keefe. They decided to loan. The next thing, uh, we soon had a core of early works to, to build a show on. So we start with four or five drawings that O'Keefe made here, and we follow up with that up with paintings, early paintings that show directly the influence uh, of those drawings on how her early paintings would look. And that is simple, linear, a flat, uh, not so much detailed as symbolic. So we have a total of 14 works in the show, which seems modest, but they are works all very focused on what she did and how it created the artist that we know today. In 1915, there were a handful of Americans really jumping in with both feet the way O'Keeffe was in terms of exploring the possibilities of modernism. And what that meant in a, in a nutshell was change. I mean, the world was changing rapidly, not in, only in terms of industry and technology, but in terms of how people thought about the world. And art is one of the surest ways to see that change happening. And reality was more and more up for grabs. You know, in art, a tree is supposed to look like a tree, most people thought, to go back to the example Eric and I are using. And O'Keefe is saying, well, a tree may be uh, a state of mind. And that is something difficult for people to, you know, just access uh, instantly. If it's a state of mind, what am I looking at? Well, you're looking at a record of someone's reaction to a particular place and time. And maybe the art is the space between that, what's hanging on the wall and you. In other words, what happens in that transaction between what's on the wall and what's in your head? And that, that's a challenge to the viewer. And O'Keefe was early, early, early in putting that challenge forward. And that just can't be underestimated. I think it is so important to recognize what kind of pioneer George O'Keefe really is mm -hmm. in these early days. Absolutely. She, she's breaking away from sort of what we would call a traditional or academic or even conventional understanding of art in which artists are expected to paint for their patrons mm -hmm. and to present soothing landscapes, for example, or allegorical scenes, heavy on metaphor and, and perhaps morality, and also portraits. And George O'Keefe can do all of those things, and she's had incredible training with some of the best artists of the day, uh, such as Dow and, and William Merritt Chase, but she decides to go and create her own sort of art, her own modern art, because modern art is, is inherently about self and sort of self-exploration and self-experimentation. And she decides then to, to really explore, again, these, these ideas of felt experience. So she's breaking away from these accepted sort of traditions or conventions in the art world. This is why her early work in South Carolina is so important um, in order to grasp. There are, as Will pointed out, a handful of other Americanists who are, are beginning to venture in similar directions, um, and she's right there with them. Who are some of the other American artists who are breaking the mold along with O'Keeffe? You know, some of the other artists that, that Stieglitz will represent or is representing at his 291 gallery that I consider doing some of the same thing are Arthur Dove, John Marin, Joseph Stella, um, Helen Tor, who is married to mm -hmm. Arthur Dove, 
And all of them are perfectly you know, able. They have been trained in academic or classical and conventional modes of, of making art. But all of them are interested in the new, the different, and the personal. And those, will, those folks will all turn out to be uh, folks that she knows and some of whom become good friends. Walter, if I may, I'd like to just remind our listeners that when we think of New York, most of us have been to New York, we think of massive skyscrapers, tons of people, and, and that's true, but let's go back 100 years, and the number of art galleries in Manhattan showing modern art, uh, I think are really two. <laughs> I think there's Alfred Stieglitz and his 291, and there's a, there's a gallery called Daniels that shows uh, a number of uh, modern things. And I suppose you could stretch and say Macbeth uh, showed American Impressionists, so maybe they were modern. But you've got a handful in, in New York. That's it. And as far as people collecting modern art, the only name that pops to my mind was John Quinn, and then closely after that, mm-hmm. Walter and Louise Ahrensberg. So they're, they're two people or <laughs> three people. We're not talking or, or thousands we, here. We could, look at it, we could look at it this way. American art collectors who want to be sort of innovative are collecting modern, but they're collecting modern European. Right. So you have some Picasso and some Brock, Mm -hmm. a little bit of Kandinsky, certainly Matisse entering into um, some of those collections. But it's difficult to be an American modern because Mm -hmm. there's hardly any gallery representation. And on top of that, there there is no Museum of Modern Art doesn't exist yet, doesn't open until uh, 1930. Uh, there is no Whitney. There, you know, so there, the Met is there, but it's a much different Met than we know today. So I, I want our listeners to kind of go back and see a much, much smaller art world where the opportunities are much more limited. And so for O'Keefe to embark on a career as a modernist at the age of 27, as opposed to, as Erica said, someone painting soothing landscapes, where there's always a market for that, continues to be to this day. <laughs> There's not, a, not, and auctions, not as much as... Not as much. Yeah, not you as just much. had a show on that. But, <laughs> but uh, the art market keeps changing. But this, there's a, an element of courage here, of bravery. And I like what, how Erica put it, that it, this is about Georgia. She's fiercely independent. Somebody without that independent spirit, it would not have taken the leap that, that she took. Well, that independence, her friend, Anita Pollitzer from mm-hmm. Charleston, and her two sisters mm-hmm. were certainly new women, modern women. Absolutely. Forefront of the suffrage movement, not just locally, but also nationally. Mm-hmm. There were even some faculty at Columbia College that were could have been considered new women. They mm-hmm. were not just worried about or concerned about a finishing school to teach the young ladies to mm-hmm. uh, be proper matrons. Exactly so. That's a really important point, and we should we should make more of Georgia's relationship with Anita Pulitzer. It was Anita uh, to whom Georgia was constantly writing while she was here in Columbia, and it was Anita who was her lifeline to what was going on in New York, and Anita would send her the latest issue of Stieglitz Camera Works. They would talk about the contents. They would talk about what they were reading. They would talk about what they were seeing, and Anita was supportive. And so in addition to having the space and the time to focus on her own work, O'Keefe had an advocate, someone that she admired, someone that she trusted, someone that she liked, who would write her letters and say, Georgia, you're on, you know, you're on the right track. You're being yourself. You know, you're becoming someone. And that trust led Georgia O'Keefe to one day roll up a bunch of these black and white drawings because, folks, O'Keefe wasn't using color at this time. She stripped her work back to black and white, to create her abstractions, charcoal on paper. 
she rolled up a bunch of these drawings and sent them to Anita Pulitzer, who was in New York still at the time. And they arrived on January 1st, 1916, because we know this because the, the two were sharing all of this information via letters. And it was Anita who marched those drawings directly over to Alfred Stieglitz at his famous 291 gallery, and without George's knowledge or permission, shared them with Stieglitz. Stieglitz opens up this roll of drawings and says, famously, at last, a woman on paper. And the meaning of that was, uh, and I'm going to let Erica comment on this, <laughs> partly, you know, partly it was, it was kind of uh, a sexist thing, but also it was genuine astonishment at the quality of this work. And later that year, he's going to hang the work, again, without George's permission. Now, now, how large are we talking about? About 18 by 24 inches each is the size she worked on while she was in Columbia. And, uh, Walter, interestingly, when she decided to start over, she decided, I'm not drawing on an easel or even a table. She sat on the floor and drew on the ground. And it was part of her you know, giving herself a mindset of doing something different, of being different, and drawing with her whole body. And so she, we have a great photo of her sketching uh, on the ground. So Alfred Stieglitz puts this stuff on the wall, doesn't frame it, mind you, and this stuff just pinned up. We're not talking hordes of people flooding through this gallery every day. Again, get the, get the <laughs> picture in your mind of a, of a gallery where it's pretty much quiet most of the time, and his, his collectors come in and his artist friends come in, but here are these drawings. And um, when George gets back to New York, as the story goes, however apocryphal it may be, she runs over to 291, to demand these drawings be taken down. They had been put up without her permission to give Stieglitz what for. Well, he hands it right back to her. You know, these are important. Are you crazy? The world needs to see who you are. So their relationship begins with a big fight, and, of course, they fall in love. And <laughs> by 1924, they will be married, and the rest will be history. But, again, it speaks to that sense of, of self. You know, she felt no one has the right to just put these up without my say, where they go, how they were presented, etc. And yet it also speaks to the fact other people instantly recognized the significance, the quality, the creativity of that work. I need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Will South of the Columbia Museum of Art and Professor Erica Doss of the University of Notre Dame about Georgia O'Keeffe. I want to ask a technical question. Mm -hmm. You say she worked in charcoal, and mm -hmm. charcoal falls off. It can. It, mm -hmm. So how does one display these without, you, you know, hanging? They were, you said Stieglitz hang. You <laughs> he know. just pinned them up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but today in a museum, do you do it flat? Well, your question is an excellent one. We travel it flat. We do not travel it up and down. We travel it flat. That is a requirement. Uh, and oftentimes these loans are restricted. At some point, with works that are fragile, they stop traveling. And this is uh, just a, a grim reality of the art world. Not everything's going to travel forever because art is not forever. You've got to conserve it. You've got to take care of it. And this is part of our job at the Columbia Museum of Art. Now, if you use a whole lot of charcoal on a piece of paper and you build it up, the more likely it is the top of it's going to drop off. If you grind it into the paper, uh, better the chances are it's going to stay put. Uh, but paper is paper, and if you've ever thrown a newspaper or had a newspaper land on the top of your, your house on the roof and it gets a lot of sun for a week or two and you pull it down, it's completely yellow and brittle. And light, given enough time, will destroy a piece of paper. So we limit the amount of light, we travel it flat, and we limit the amount of time that they're on the wall. So 
this is a great opportunity to see some work you may not have a chance to see in the future because they are not up on the walls all that often. This is a great opportunity. Thank you for the question. <laughs> These things are not always up. This is a chance to see them. Excuse Can we me. talk a little bit more about Stieglitz and why he was so interested in her drawings? Surely. And I, Erica, okay, can you talk I, about their relationship, too? Because that just fascinates me. Sure. I'd, I'd love your take sure. on that. Sure. In 1913, at the Armory Show, Stieglitz was one of the early uh, viewers of the show, an enthusiastic supporter. And he ended up buying the Kandinsky that was on view. And he took the Kandinsky to 291. And he told his, uh, his stable of artists, including at that time um, sort of Hartley and Dove and, and Max Weber, this is the kind of art that, that we should be making. And by we, what he meant was American, American moderns. And um, I think he was sort of the big, big proponent of creating and sort of um, developing um, a particular kind of American modern art. So when uh, O'Keeffe's drawings show up on January 1, 1916, he is thrilled, uh, not just because, oh, a woman on paper, but because for him, this represents the direction of American modern that he's most interested in. And so he, he puts the drawings up. He, he has an argument with her over, um, over her own security, I think. She maybe doesn't trust herself um, in terms of her direction. And he convinces her, yeah, this is, this is great. This is, this is the way to go. Um, this is the kind of modern art that we need in the United States. In other words, Stieglitz is showing Picasso, Matisse, Brock, other European moderns in his gallery. But what he's really hoping to do is foster an American kind of modern. And um, at one point, Arthur Dove is sort of going through various drawings that Stieglitz has uh, for sale in the gallery. And he, and he looks at works by O'Keefe, and he says to Stieglitz, oh, these are really great. And Stieglitz is, is just thrilled because he's realizing that other artists are beginning to recognize what he has discovered um, in Georgia O'Keefe. And as Will pointed out, they they have a tempestuous relationship. <laughs> they uh, they quickly word. fall in love. He's married at the time. He has to get divorced. He has older children, um, but they have a they have a, a really deep and abiding um, uh, relationship early on. She um, is is told by Stieglitz, look. You're an important artist. I'm going to I'm going to convince you to come to New York. Stop teaching. Don't waste your time in the hinterlands because after Carolina, she goes to Texas, and he brings her to New York. He helps provide a stipend for her, and eventually they um, they move in with one another and uh, get married. So, I mean, their relationship is, I think it's it's a collaborative relationship. She is independent, but at the same time recognizing, wow. If I go do this, I can become a productive American modern if I go to New York and, and I live with him. And she also realizes what she's giving up. So it's no surprise starting in 1929, she, be, she begins to spend a lot of time in New Mexico um, where she can be free and um, free of him, free of New York, and, and begin to get back into that nature that she so loved to be in. The ETV special. Mm -hmm. How did, did, is this a biography or is this just from the moment that Stieglitz discovered her? 
again, the special is really to, to fill out the, the time itself. And there's a good deal of discussion about what she did while she was here and, and how she may have felt about that. Again, the, the opportunity is there to really talk about something that you don't often find in the books, in the specials that exist about O'Keefe. This, this lifestyle she had at the college, teaching, teaching young women who were in long white dresses and, uh, every day and then telling them, look, uh, let's go for a long walk. And she would take these, these young ladies on these, what must have been excruciating for them, miles long, hikes. And there were, it was known around the college that Miss O'Keefe, which she was called, you know, she must have these special shoes or something because she just keeps going. And, uh, and she would stop and say, you know, let's look at this tree. Let's look at this leaf. Let's look at this water. And what do you think it means? It's hard for us to know uh, because there's just not a, a record that we've discovered yet anyway of what these students must have thought about someone so deeply engaged in the world around them. It must have been a stunner to say, look at this in a different way. Think about this in a different way. She took on uh, one young daughter of, of a faculty member there at the college, and her name was um, Adelaide Earnhardt, and who was just about 10 years old at the time, not a student, but a daughter of one of the professors, and gave her private lessons. And meaning of this was O'Keefe was not aloof from the students while she was here. She was deeply engaged. So as a person, you know, she was, she was not only excited about these ideas, but willing to share them. And this all points to something about the modernist mindset. And that is that art is about more than entertainment. It's m about more than having something that matches your couch and the furniture in your living room. <laughs> Art is a, it's a path towards a greater awareness. And what is that awareness? Well, for somebody like O'Keefe and Dow and a number of other modernists, Kandinsky included, you get to see the interconnectedness of things. You know, music and art are connected. Uh, people are connected with the planet that they're in. These things are not separate entities. They are all connected, and art is a way to understand that. And so modernism could give us entree to a different way of thinking about the world. When you see modernism through you know, that lens and know that she was among us, to, <laughs> so to speak, at the time, the influence of modernists is sort of incalculable because uh, after the emergence of modernism, uh, not only do you get lots of different modernist organizations and all of the standard stuff, modernist books, Ulysses, etc., modernist music, but you wind up with a different population, and uh, that is not insignificant. You get people in a culture thinking differently because of the artists who led you there. Let's talk about O'Keefe again and art. Mm -hmm. She's being exhibited at Stieglitz Gallery, but when did she become big name nationally? You know, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, Will, but I believe that George O'Keefe has a pretty immediate impact in mm -hmm. the New York art world. Mm -hmm. And um, almost as soon as those drawings go up, and then very quickly thereafter, Stieglitz helps arrange a, a solo exhibition of some of the works that she's produced mm -hmm. um, when she is a teacher in Texas, and then some of her work afterwards. And as I mentioned, um, the reviews, the criticism, is, is pretty much centered on Georgia O'Keeffe woman. So there are a lot of what we might call gendered reviews, and, and the responses from, a, from, the, from the male critics and the newspaper reporters are pretty much, whoa, um, here's a woman's response to nature. And uh, so they tend to sexualize her depictions of nature in ways that she certainly didn't appreciate. She sometimes found them amusing, but very often was sort of, she'd roll her eyes. And, um, and yet, 
I don't know, like they say, any criticism is good criticism. She got a lot of retention right away. She is she still doing black and white, or is she beginning? Oh, she's really jumped into color in a big way during this period. I want to back up just a little and underscore something Erica is talking about. I think she's letting men off a little bit light here. And Erica, you don't have to do that. It was so <laughs> tough for women to be artists, even you know when they wanted to be, and were fiercely independent. A number of women who jumped into the market would sign their names in ways that would not reveal that they were women so that their chances of selling were better. And we're talking 20th century here, not 19th. And I'll give you an example. There was an artist in California of O'Keeffe's same vintage. Her name was Euphemia Charlton Fortune, and she simply signed her paintings E period Fortune and, of course, left records, as many women artists did, that they had to do that. Otherwise, the galleries wouldn't show them. O'Keeffe had a had a tough, tough market to contend with, and as Erica said, those reviews were sexualized. She did have to contend with questions throughout her career about the relationship of sexuality to her flower images, for example. Uh, men were rarely asked the same questions <laughs> in similar ways. I think that's fair to say. Uh, so in addition to just modernism not being everyone's cup of tea, there was the fact that she was working in a man's world and paving the way for a lot of artists who came after her to enjoy success they might not have had without her. Well, I, I was just thinking of an older Columbia woman, she's now now deceased, who mm-hmm. used to write book reviews, and she did it for the Nashville Tennessean, and it was a large southern newspaper. Her name happened to be Julian, but it was spelled like a man, and they mm-hmm. they published her reviews as long as they thought she was a man. Mm-hmm. Did they stop publishing? Yeah. Oh, my yeah. gosh. That is such, unfortunately, a typical a typical story in uh, in American culture in the uh, in the 20th century, and Erica's thinking silently to herself and continuing into the 21st. Probably we're not completely, <laughs> probably not completely no. over it. And uh, no, the Gorilla Girls know that one right. as they keep coming up with statistics on how many women artists uh, are being represented in some of the biennials at the major museums in New York. Mm-hmm. Numbers haven't changed a lot. But Walter, to address your question about her time in uh, in New Mexico. It's such a romantic era. You know, she's a woman. She's alone in her own place out west. You know, she's painting skulls floating in the air. Uh, This just captures the imagination of the American public, and for good reason. These are incredible images. They're inspiring. They're dreamy. uh, They're romantic. But one wonders, did she ever experience a similar period later in her career equal to the one in Colombia where she has an epiphany and a real breakthrough and and uh, her career is hurtled forward. Uh, Arguably, her time in Columbia was the pivotal moment, and a moment that was never replicated in exactly the same way. She became an incredibly prolific and creative artist, but that spark, that 15 minutes of real revelation that I could create works of art that really reflect me and no one else, or me and nothing else, Uh, was here, and it was brief, and it was explosive, and she built on it, certainly. She built on it in incredible ways. But some of her biographers have noted that, you know, that never really happened again the same way. And so the lesson there might be when inspiration strikes or knocks, you know, grab it, (laughs) take it, and she did. And she wrote a poem while she was in Columbia. Very few people, I imagine, will have ever even heard of this poem, but it's called The Tale of the World. And I won't read the whole thing, but I will say at the end of the poem, she said, there's really nothing greater than having your hands on the tail of the world, meaning you grab the world. 
and hang on. Well, I, I hope that that poem is in the catalog. We are reproducing it in full in the catalog, and it'll be a little revelation for a lot of people. And again, she wrote that at Columbia College, and it goes to her state of mind that I am grabbing the tail of the world okay. as it goes around. Well, Professor Dosh, you, you talked about popularity and women and art values. In the art world today, is O'Keefe appreciating? Is she staying the same? I mean, we keep seeing about record prices at art auctions every quarter, it seems like. Right. Uh, George O'Keefe has an incredibly strong, popular appeal, and I think a very strong po uh, appeal among critics and historians as well. Very few of her works are still on the market. Will correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. One thing that, that happened when she uh, became part of the 291 stable and, and came under Stieglitz's influence is that she became acquainted with his incredible financial acumen. And um, during the 1930s, for example, George O'Keefe was the highest paid American painter of the decade. Now, there were other artists who were very popular, Thomas Hart Benton and Grant Wood, for example. But she only slowly and very carefully allowed maybe one to two paintings onto the market every year. And as a result, her value stayed high and um, her popularity stayed high her persona might have stayed a little bit mysterious or secretive. This helped set up uh, how she is considered and collected today. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that she remains a significant artist for American painters and certainly among the American public, but not just American. George O'Keefe's reputation is, is global and has been for a long time. As, as Will said, the, the show in South Carolina is competing with mm -hmm. shows in, in Europe and shows in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, she's a huge favorite among a lot of Asian collectors and Asian museums. You know, that might have something to do with the, the shared interest in nature and, and the landscape. I'm not sure. But I, I think we would agree that George O'Keefe remains a sort of name brand, recognizable American artist, sort of up there with Jackson Pollock and uh, Norman Rockwell and, and others. She, she remains popular. Well, Sotheby's just put a, uh, just a couple of months ago, put a rather average-sized O'Keefe painting on the market called Jimson Weed. And they estimated this painting to sell for somewhere between 3 and $5 million, which is no small amount of money for anybody and it sold for $54 million. So they were slightly <laughs> off on that one. And <laughs> that was just there a few go. months ago. Right, you, right. You said a mid-size. What are you talking oh, about? Oh, I think it was, you know, it's in the vicinity of 16 by 20 inches. That's not it exactly, but it's not a not a huge painting. So did she ever get really the over, oversized? Oh, she did. She did, especially in later years. She did some big cloud studies uh, that influenced mm -hmm. by flying in a plane and that kind of thing, very, very large. But most of her life, you know, they were easel-sized things and the drawings as well. And I'm going to add a little bit to what Erica just said. Uh, she was smart, and Stieglitz was a huge help and a huge guide in terms of dealing with the art world and the press and collectors, and later on, curators. I mean, she became encircled by those kinds of folks and less and less by average people like Anita Pulitzer. You know, she became sort of, uh, you know, encased in the, in the art world. But those drawings that she did in Columbia, you know, what became of them? I mean, they had been pinned up in 291 all those years ago. Well, they never sold, right? There wasn't a big market for that stuff. That stuff didn't sell, and she never tried to market it. She took all those drawings and most of the drawings she ever did, and she stashed them away in her home 
in, in Abiquiu, Ghost Ranch, and we only found those drawings after she died. That's how recently we've known about those. And so they, these drawings radicalized the way that we thought about her paintings because we discovered how often these drawings underpinned paintings. They preceded the paintings. Her thought was really graphic and linear rather than you know, spread out and colorful. And, uh, but she, uh, she didn't make a move to promote herself through those drawings, even though they were revolutionary at the time they were made. Uh, to the contrary, she just stuck them away. And the reason we're confident of the dates of the drawings is because of her correspondence with Anita Pulitzer, and we wouldn't have that story uh, again without Anita. But O'Keefe was very savvy in how she handled all of that stuff. Which museum houses those drawings now? Well, they're spread out. Uh, the National Gallery has a lion's share but they also, uh, there's a great example at the Met, there's another great example at the Whitney, and, uh, but they're small in number. I mean, I, I don't know the exact number of the specials, but it's, it's only a few dozen that have survived. We're not talking hundreds. So the rarity factor is another reason that these is so important to protect these. And, and you mentioned the Greenville County Museum of Art does mm -hmm. have an early O'Keefe. They do have an early O'Keefe, and it will be here on view in our show. Yeah. Any other museum in the state? No, and, and this is an interesting thing. I have not been able to, to determine this beyond the shadow of a doubt, but I do not think there is an O'Keeffe painting in South Carolina. There is a drawing. The Greenville Museum has it. But it's a goal of the, of the Columbia Museum of Art to eventually correct this and bring an O'Keeffe painting permanently to uh, South Carolina. We need to have her represented here so that we can tell this story all the time. Well, maybe you ought to swap your Monet for uh, O'Keeffe. <laughs> <laughs> not a good idea, Walter. We're not going to go down that road. We're not going to go down that road. No. You want both. <laughs> yeah, exactly, Erica. You want both. Right. Yeah. I think what's, uh, what's also important about this story is that Georgia O'Keeffe came up with these drawings long before she developed her relationship with Stieglitz. She knew the 291 Gallery, mm -hmm. and she had visited there, but she, um, she came up with this in innovative approach to, to, the, to the natural world and to drawing, shared it with her friend. Her friend showed it to Sieglitz, and then her, um, you know, her reputation and her career begins after that. Uh, a lot of people assume, oh, George O'Keefe only became successful because of Stieglitz, and I think it's a lot more complicated than that. George O'Keefe probably would have become successful um, she was certainly helped along in her relationship with Stieglitz and her representation at 291. But she was an experimenter. She was an innovator. Um, and she was doing it on her own early on. You know, when O'Keefe was at Columbia College, we mustn't have an image of her sitting in her room all alone, you know, doing nothing but drawing. I've already mentioned the numerous nature walks she would go on. Uh, dragging her students along with her. But, you know, she loved music, and she listened to music, and she tried her hand at violin. For those of you who don't know, as a violinist, George O'Keefe was a great painter. <laughs> she, sc <laughs> she scared a lot of people with that thing. But she talked to the then-President Ariel, uh, President Ariel of, uh, of Columbia College, and showed him some of her drawings. And one famous little exchange—well, not famous. Uh, it's in the letters to Anita— uh, she showed him a modernist drawing she'd just done, and, and he looked at her and said, Georgia, that's, or Miss O'Keefe, that's mad as a March hare. And uh, <laughs> we know this because Georgia turned around and told the story to Anita. So, But point being, she was interacting with her colleagues at Columbia, 
at, at Columbia College. She was interacting with the students. She was trying her hand at being a violinist. Uh, I think we're all fortunate that she chose the other direction. And this was a time, as I said, best of times, worst of times. She felt like she was secluded from culture, <laughs> and yet it opened up a space and a time for her to really create and explore and to make connections she might never otherwise have made with Anita, then eventually with Stieglitz. We just can't uh, overestimate the criticality of all that. I can't help but think of the contrast of here she is in the early 20th century doing the modernist and then going to New York. But the art world in South Carolina blooms in the 1920s with the mm -hmm. Charleston Renaissance, right. which the Pulitzer sisters helped fund. Mm -hmm. But it's <laughs> a much more traditional. Right. As it, as it was everywhere, really. And if you look at... Uh, California, for example, I've done a lot of, uh, of work on California artists. In the 20s, what we call American Impressionism was really the dominant kind of painting. Now, California had its modernists, but again, it was a, a number that would fit in a bus, maybe a taxi. Mm -hmm. And the, the dominant painters were all painting nature in a similar way to the Charleston painters. And if you go across the country, uh, the different art colonies, most of them, you know, including New Mexico in the 20s, we're doing a kind of impressionist-tinged realism, romantic subject matter, whether it was Native Americans or the Pacific Ocean or Charlestonian, you know, architecture. Uh, modernism through the 20s and into the 30s remained politically uh, problematic. You were associated with leftists. Uh, people were, were uh, threatened with losing their jobs who practiced modernism. Uh, sales weren't there. Modernism was a very, very tough road. And so across America, the dominant kind of painting remained a traditional type of painting, whether it was Los Angeles, Charleston, Salt Lake City, Denver, uh, Minneapolis. Just go across the country, pick your city, pick your local artist. They were all like that. Uh, good artists, but within a traditional vein. And again, this is why O'Keeffe was such a standout. She and uh, you know another dozen painters across the country uh, we're jumping into this, not knowing where it was going to lead. They had no, they had no idea of what the future of this this uh, modern art was going to be, but they were willing to see. You said people could lose their job. Was this oh, in, yeah. In, in, oh, yeah. in art departments or in art departments? Uh, I, I knew a modernist uh, 20, 25 years ago uh, in Salt Lake City named George Dibble who was the first to exhibit a modern painting in Salt Lake City. Now, if you want to talk a tough crowd in the early 20th century, Salt Lake is a little tougher than L.A. <laughs> and George was teaching there, and he told me uh, the day one when he started his job, and I got this straight from George, who was uh, elderly at the time, but sharp, sharp as a tack, that, you know, to drop that right away because that was not going to fly at the university and that uh, he wouldn't be teaching there the next year. And what he had painted was a kind of a generic cubist picture of the type that had already been going on for 10 or 15 years in America, but it was enough to associate him with communism. And uh, this, this association was just not going to fly. And you know, uh, cubism just had this, this overwhelming, depending on where you were in America, this overwhelming uh, political implication that you were not to be trusted. And that's an association, as we know, that lasted uh, well into the 50s and actually flowered in the 1950s. And artists could be chased down and put on lists for their associations. But it actually started lots earlier. Georgia O'Keeffe's painting sold for more than $50 million, but mm -hmm. what other artists did she influence over time? I mean... You know, it's a good question. She she didn't... Once she became part of Stieglitz's world 
and was able to concentrate on George O'Keefe. She, um, she didn't teach again. In my opinion, George O'Keefe's influence is really as an American modern artist and a woman artist. In, and let me explain. Starting in the 1960s and 1970s, her reputation as an American modern um, just goes higher and higher. And I think a lot of women artists look at her as a role model in some ways. Complicated, very complex role model. But here's an example of a woman artist who is fiercely independent, stuck to her guns, did, did what she wanted to do. So I'm, I'm, I think it's more of a persona, um, the American artist persona, more so than specific style of art that ultimately is her, um, is her big influence on other artists. Will, what do you think? I, I'm thinking good answer. I'm just going to say <laughs> ditto to what Erica just said. She, when you look for artists that look like O'Keefe, and I think Erica is alluding to this, you're not going to find a lot of them, but the influence as a persona that I can do this too and that there is a path toward success, O'Keefe showed that there was, and that uh, is priceless. Well, who would be some of the women in, in the 60s, that, again, in terms of persona that, that come to the fore? Oh, you know, this, when you get into the 50s and 60s, women are still battling in a man's world, and you think of the whole abstract expressionist uh, network dominated by uh, Pollock and de Kooning, and the critics, of course, are all men as well. By the time you get you know, a woman like Helen Frankenthaler, she's got to contend mm-hmm. with a culture that is, if anything, and Erica, jump in here, more macho than it was in the teens. Right. These guys right. are and just... Everybody, <laughs> go ahead. They're talking about Lee Krasner, who is an incredible painter, as the wife of Jackson Pollock, rather mm-hmm. than Lee Krasner right. um, as sort of an abstract expressionist who helped Pollock figure out how to paint. Um, <laughs> I think it's important to recognize that O'Keefe, in, her, in the last decades of her life, started to talk to people about her early years. And she let out that she maybe could have done better for other women artists. Um, I I remember a passage at one point where she commented on how Stieglitz had promised Helen Tor, um, a a great American painter, wife of Arthur Dove, um, that Stieglitz had promised her a solo show, but it it never happened. And... um, George O'Keefe felt some regret for that, and I don't know why the show didn't happen. I think Helen Torr's work is, is, is gorgeous. It's, it's quite amazing. But the fact is that we don't know very much about Helen Torr today. We certainly know the name George O'Keefe more than we know the name Helen Torr, and a lot of that ha- had to do with the fact that she didn't have Alfred Stieglitz as her gallery representative. And it's interesting that, that George O'Keefe began to reflect on how lucky, how fortunate she really was. Um, but she only started to talk about those things in the last couple decades of her life. Well, I hate to say this, folks, but Alfred's giving me the wind-up signal. Oh. Will South from the Columbia Museum of Art and Professor Erica Doss from Notre Dame, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. What an interesting conversation. Georgia O'Keeffe was only in South Carolina for a very short time, literally months. But as we learned, they were months that changed her life and in many ways, the American art world and the exhibit, Georgia O'Keeffe, her Carolina story at the Columbia Museum of Art, 
runs through January the 10th, 2016. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio. Thank you.